This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, Bob Woodward, John Emerson, and Eli Addy. But what about Bob? For many people of a certain age, there's a reason they got into journalism or politics, and his name is Bob Woodward. Sure, at first it may have been Robert Redford's portrayal of Woodward in Alan Pockel's 1976 film All the President's Men. I was 11 at the time and got goosebumps hearing Hal Holbrook's voice as Deep Throat saying, quote, You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. But spanning 40 years since Watergate and 16 years after his first book, most recently, The Price of Politics, out last week from Simon & Schuster, Woodward may be inspiring more young people than ever, of different political stripes, to understand the pinnacles and pressures of public service. I've read The Price of Politics, and I've seen Bob Woodward interviewed for this book a number of times. The common emotion expressed is depression, depression that a deal was close but wasn't struck, depression that Obama or Boehner didn't lead. But I saw something else, something only Bob Woodward does. He shows in the price of politics intense, behind-closed-doors effort, mostly during the summer of 2011, by people like Jack Lew, Rohit Komar, Gene Sperling, Barry Jackson, Tim Geithner, Paul Ryan, Rob Neighbors, and Eric Cantor. I alternate Democrat-Republican among secondary characters in The Price of Politics because for 380 pages we see these people at work, politically motivated, sure, but not just doing photo ops. They're crunching numbers, proposing, counter-proposing, a government, dysfunctional as it is, at work. We may not like the result in 2011, but this is only Woodward's second book about Obama. He did four and counting on George W. Bush. Assuming there's a second Obama term, we can assume there'll be more chapters from Bob Woodward. We don't have the luxury of an Oval Office or Cabinet Room taping system anymore. Instead, we rely on Woodward. Sometime in November, after the dust settles on this election, the optimist in me imagines Barack Obama reading this book, inviting John Boehner over to the White House for Merlot, and saying, John, politics got in the way of us making a deal last year, but I'm not running for anything anymore. Let's make history. Bob Woodward, welcome to Polyoptics. Based on what you know of these two men, how realistic is that scenario? Well, good for your optimism. Uh, if, you know, maybe it's going to happen. I think there are big lessons in this story of three and a half years of negotiations, private meetings, angry phone calls, miscommunications, and so forth. And, and maybe uh, people will internalize it and say, this is something we've got to fix. I mean, the the fixing it uh, is a real serious business. This isn't just about budgets or credit ratings. It really is about the federal government's financial house, which is not in order. It is a mess. We have $16 trillion in IOUs out in the world. We have to get about a trillion more each year. And there comes a point where this could crack and affect everyone. Uh, in the country, and the value of homes, the value of bank accounts, any investment, 
uh, more jobs could be lost, and is the Congressional Budget Office, which is the neutral arbiter on all of this, says if they don't make some sort of deal, reach some sort of agreement, we're going to have a government-induced recession. Bob, you've been studying and following presidents for 40 years. In the span of that time, and even going back further, um, you'd have to maybe just think of Reagan's second term uh, tainted as it was by Iran-Contra as the last time a president had a full four years without the overhang of a big scandal. I'm talking about Lewinsky in, in uh, Clinton's second term and the persistence of war in Bush's second term. So here you come into a potential Obama second term without uh, without a big scandal, with him still young and vibrant, and maybe the sense that uh, while he did complete a lot in, in the first term, he could do something huge either with Boehner or Cantor or a combination of them. Uh, talk about what you think, why you think a second term uh, might be different than the last 40 years. Well, uh, you forever hopeful and... Uh We'll have to see about that. The, the book is called The Price of Politics because when, it, when the rubber meets the road and they get down to these private moments, which I recount, for instance, Clinton calls Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi. They are the Democratic leaders, respectively, in the Senate and House, down to the Oval Office and says, well, maybe I can make a deal with Boehner. Uh, there is a lot of resistance from them. They don't want to cut Medicare, the health insurance program for the elderly, which is wildly popular, uh, because cutting it, as Nancy Pelosi tells the president, will eliminate the distinction between the Republicans and the Democrats. She actually says if uh, the Democrats go along with Medicare cuts, uh, then it will make the Republicans whole on the Paul Ryan budget, which is at the House. In the end, uh, there's a war in the Democratic Party. Uh, the president is the leader, but he does not control right. the Democrats. And the Speaker Boehner uh, does not, to say the least, control the Republicans in the House. There is a war going on among the Republicans. And in the what happened here in the three and a half years is they decided let's postpone everything and not make any of the hard decisions. Let's leave that uh, for 2013. Well, that's coming very soon. Bob, going back to Grant Park in 2008, you know, anyone watching television or following Obama's campaign would have thought this was a historic presidency about to unfold. Uh, but then come January 2009, in the chief of staff's office is Rahm Emanuel, a, a Pelosi ally from Congress, and Larry Summers. And you detail in some, in some level uh, the way Summers' personality affects those on the other side of the negotiating table. How important was, were missteps early in the transition to setting up a staff structure in the White House that maybe wasn't ready to do this deal by 2011. Well, that's a, a very good point. I mean, Rahm Emanuel's chief of staff, his attitude, as I quote in the book, was, well, we have the votes, we control both houses, they did for the first two years, and screw you, we're going to do what we want. Now, Obama, in these meetings, where I have the meeting notes and recount exactly what happened in the language, said, oh, no, we have to meet, we're going to listen to you. And when the Republicans made some proposals, uh, they were essentially dismissed. And the, the rhetoric did not, of Obama did not match 
the actions of Rahm Emanuel and the Democrats controlling the Senate and the House, and that that opened the the fissure between the Republicans and the Obama White House. In fact, uh, Eric Cantor at one point said, "Gee, if they do what Obama says, if they listen in in this outreach, we Republicans are going to be in a minority for a real long time." You know, the reasoning in the White House was we, we they have a stimulus package to get through, they have a health care reform plan to get through, and so forth. But the, they paid a price then when the Republicans took over the House. Bob, early on, you, you have conversations that you detail between talking about the price of politics and the constant campaign, conversations between Valerie Jarrett and the departed budget director, Peter Orzag, and you also have conversations that Valerie was able to uh, arranged between Ivan Seidenberg of the Business Roundtable and Greg Brown of Motorola. Can you talk about the feedback that was coming into the White House from the from business and how the White House reacted? Uh, well, the, the Obama and Valerie Jarrett, his uh, emissaries of the business community, never closed the deal. Now, there's always going to be a strain between a, a Democratic president and uh, often Republican CEOs, people who run the big businesses. But there wasn't the outreach. For instance, uh, Seidenberg, who is uh, CEO of Verizon, one of the giant companies and head of uh, the Business Roundtable, which represented you know trillions of dollars of business activity. He was invited to the Super Bowl one year, and he thought, oh, that's great, and he came down to the White House, it was, there was a storm and it was difficult, and then he saw the president for about 15 seconds, and the president sat down in the front with his buddies, and Seidenberg felt totally used and exploited, and talked to Val- Valerie Jarrett about it and complained, and she said, look, you're with the president, uh, isn't that enough? Well, it wasn't enough. You have to establish these personal relations, which just hasn't occurred sufficiently. Well, the book is The Price of Politics by uh, Associate Editor of the Washington Post, Bob Woodward. Bob, uh, thanks very much for this book. And as an optimist, I, I do see a uh, an Obama victory in November, and I hope that a second term gives you an opportunity to write another book, hopefully with a happier ending. Okay, thanks. As my listeners on Polyoptics know, we spend a lot of time focusing on what is actually happening with the candidates in these battleground states. And as time gets short, less than 50 days before the election, the only time I think you may see a candidate uh, touch down in California would maybe go to a fundraiser. In President Obama's case, I think he's done most that he can there. Governor Romney was there earlier this week. But it got me thinking about how important California is to our union. And because it's not at all a battleground, we tend to uh, not focus on its major set of issues. So I wanted to pick up the phone, call Los Angeles, and talk to my old friend, John Emerson, president of the Capital Group Private Client Services. And during exactly the same time that I worked in the White House, he was a political director for the Western states and mostly California. And John and I spent many trips together on Air Force One, going back and forth, Northridge earthquake, uh, with um, and so many other trips to California and points west. So, John, it's been a long time. Welcome to Polyoptics. 
Well, thanks, Josh, and, uh, and thanks for having me. It's great to catch up. Before we get to California, which I find endlessly fascinating, is were you in Charlotte uh, a few weeks ago for the convention? Absolutely. You know, I've been to every convention since 1980. Uh, I was a delegate uh, this time. In fact, I, I'm co-chairing the Obama campaign out here, so I had the responsibility of, of putting together our at-large delegate slate and uh, brought my 18-year-old daughter uh, so she could experience her first convention. So we uh, uh, we had a blast. We um, I uh, had a chance to be with some of our old colleagues uh, during the Clinton speech, and uh, I, I, I will tell you, in terms of everything that the convention needed to do, I think this did it in spades, and the fact that their uh, uh, the, the race seems to have opened up a little bit post-convention uh, confirms that. So your 18-year-old daughter, John, would have just been born to you and Kim when we were first working together in Washington, but I understand walking around the streets of Charlotte, she was almost a bigger attraction than many of the major uh, heavy-duty politicos. Well, she had a major role in this movie called The Hunger Games, and uh, she's got, uh, oh my gosh, over, probably over 75,000 Twitter followers, and, oh my and God. just with all the press that came out with that movie and the, you know, the DVD that has interviews of the actors and all that, she gets recognized a lot. So it was pretty fun. We, we probably had uh, half a dozen governors and senators who insisted that I take a picture of them with my daughter on their iPhone so they could send it to their kids and show that they, uh, they were hanging with someone from the Hunger Games. So it was pretty funny. When you were in Washington uh, and in the very early years of the Clinton years, you and Kim and, and the rest of us in, at the very beginning of the Clinton White House, did you ever think that life would bring you right back to California and that 18 years later you'd be the proud father of a Hollywood star? Well, I wouldn't call her a Hollywood star, but I, I'm sure a proud father. She's, a, she's an absolutely great kid. Who'll be, she's actually graduated from um, high school and is taking a gap year before attending Stanford next, uh, next fall. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I guess I imagined a lot of things. What I didn't imagine is how quickly this time would fly. Uh, that is uh, probably the biggest stunner of everything. Because time flies so fast, John, let's put you in the Clinton suite in Charlotte and, and listen along with the rest of us to a little bit of the, president, of the former president's speech to the convention. He appointed Republican secretaries of defense, the Army, and transportation. He appointed a vice president who ran against him in 2008. And he trusted that vice president to oversee the successful end of the war in Iraq and the implementation of the Recovery Act. What did it feel like, John, you up in the, the Clinton family box to be watching our old boss give a speech, one more speech at a convention? It was, uh, I, I got to tell you, it was phenomenal. It was just a, a great feeling. You knew walking in there that he was going to knock it out of the park. I mean, he has such, as you know, he has such an incredible ability to take complex issues and boil them down to their essence and present them in an understandable and entertaining way uh, that I think we all, our expectations were high and even our high expectations were met. As I said earlier, I've been to every convention since 80. I, I actually believe this was the single best convention speech I ever heard, particularly in terms of accomplishing its mission, which was framing the election. Uh, and he said things both about Mitt Romney and the ticket and about Barack Obama that Barack Obama can never say. And, uh, and I think it was an enormous uh, asset to the campaign. And it was just pure fun theater, no question about it. 
I've always known you, John Emerson, as one of the most upbeat, optimistic people that I've ever met in politics. Is there anything about life since 97 when you left Washington, even up till today, that has done anything to dull your optimism? Are you still as as excited about the political process as you've ever been, or have the last few years taken their toll? Well, I think, you know, I am, I still am, I mean, I'm congenitally optimistic. There, you, you hit that nail on the head, no question about that. But uh, I will say I've been somewhat discouraged at um, uh, the way the political process has become so incredibly polarized uh, over the over the last number of years. You know, I think we all thought it was pretty bad during the Clinton White House when there were, you know, investigations and, uh, you know, special counsels and, and grand jury hearings and all those kinds of things. I'll tell you, that was a walk in the park compared to yeah. uh, the way things are now. And, uh, and and I just think that's sad. And I, you know, be honest with you, I don't think it's good for the country. And what I'm hoping is, you know, I'm a big believer in, you know, the, the pendulum swinging back and forth. And I'm hoping that the pendulum has swung so way, so far in that direction that it can't help but, uh, but begin to turn around and come back, hopefully after this election. As we said at the top of our conversation, this is a period of the campaign where the focus is not on California, decidedly so. It's on places like Florida, Ohio, Virginia, even Colorado, at least to get the Western sentiment in a little bit. But from your way of thinking and from where you guys are on the on the West Coast, there is a lot going on in California that the rest of the country ought to be interested in, isn't it? Yeah, no question about it. I mean, it, it, as you recall, California is the place where the tax revolt started with Prop 13, uh, where uh, the whole immigration uh, conversation started with Prop 187. Uh, so there's a lot that happens in California during these election years that impacts politics across the country. And there are two things in particular here that I think are very interesting. Number one, California for the first time has completely open primaries and general elections. What this means is we no longer have a system where, say, in running for Congress, you take the top Democrat and the top Republican and then run them off against one another in the general election. What the system is now is you take the top two vote-getters and they run off against the general election. And you can vote in a primary regardless of whether you're a registered Democrat, Republican, or Independent. And why I think this is significant is I really believe that one reason legislative bodies, and Congress in particular, are so polarized is because they're largely made up of seats that are drawn to be safe for the incumbents. So this means you have safe Democratic seats and safe Republican seats. And as a result of that, people who represent more of the extreme wings of the party tend to win their party nominations and then ultimately tend to get elected to these legislative bodies. Well, under the California system, the um, independent voters get to have a say all the way through, and it puts a premium on candidates who come more to the center than candidates who represent uh, either extreme of the party. So it'll be very interesting to see if that plays out in the kinds of people who are elected. Don't forget, California sends 53 people to the Congress. That's but in the kinds of people that are elected, and, and if it does, I wonder if that new rule will kind of sweep the country. It'll be something interesting to watch. But another thing that people focus on with California, John, obviously, is the ability for so many people to provide needed resources to both the Democratic and Republican campaigns. Uh, Mitt Romney was in California just uh, earlier this week. 
Uh, you've told me that President Obama is going to make one more trip before the end of the cycle. How do you and your colleagues who, who are so helpful to these campaigns view the role of California in the fundraising process? Well, I mean, let, let's face it. We're the, uh, we're the national ATM machine for uh, certainly the Democratic Party. Uh, we, we, you know, California now produces you know, much more money, actually, than even New York does. Uh, and, and in all likelihood, uh, the Republican Party, although I know Florida and Texas produce a lot of money, uh, for the, as well as New York as well. But, um, you know, I think we're, we're, we're just kind of used to it. The political campaign out here essentially becomes recruiting people to go to places like Nevada and Colorado to, you know, to work for the, uh, for their candidates on election day. You know, there's one other thing, uh, that I wanted to talk about that could have an impact across the country in California, and that is sure. that there are two initiatives on the ballot that effectively would require Californians to raise taxes on themselves to help deal with the deficit problem that California has, and also to uh, help better fund education and better fund our schools. And since California was the beginning of the tax revolt with Prop 13 back in 1978, it'll be really interesting to see whether California voters now say, we get the math, we get the arithmetic, as Bill Clinton would say, you can't balance the books without both revenues and spending cuts, and we're willing to step up to the plate and help out on the revenue side. So that, I think, will also have significant repercussions one way or the other, depending upon how it, how it plays out in the election uh, regarding those two initiatives. That was a major focus of our conversation earlier this program with, with Bob Woodward and, and the fact that revenues and entitlement cuts couldn't be agreed upon by both Democrats and Republicans uh, in 2011. Maybe they can in 2013. What is, the, what is in the planning for, I guess, President Obama's last visit to California this cycle? Well, he's coming out here on Sunday, October 7th to Los Angeles, and then Monday, October 8th up to uh, the Bay Area. Um, on the 7th, we're going to have a big concert at the Nokia Theater, which holds about 5,000 people. And tickets are going for as little as $44 all the way up to, uh, uh, to $10,000. And then there will be a dinner, uh, kind of a higher-end dinner afterwards. Uh, and it uh, looks like the next morning we may have, uh, this isn't confirmed yet, but there's a possibility we may have Bill Clinton in town for a lunch, I'm sorry, for a breakfast uh, fundraiser uh, for the campaign as well. And then uh, President Obama on Monday the 8th flies up to San Francisco, and there will be a big similar concert kind of event with dinner uh, up in San Francisco uh, as, as well at the uh, I believe at the old Fillmore East or Fillmore West. I'm sorry, but uh, I'm not certain about that venue. But there will be so it'll be a big concert in both LA and San Francisco. John, you're the California co-chair of the Obama campaign. Worked with me at the White House for many years, and one of the the party's most deft fundraisers. Uh, I want to replay for our listeners the clip uh, that was made in May of Governor Romney at the fundraiser at Mark Later's house and get your reaction to it. There are 47% of the people who vote for the president no matter what. All right, there are 47% who are with him, who are dependent upon government, who believe that, that they are victims, who believe that government has a responsibility to care for them, who believe that they are entitled to health care, to food, to housing, to you name it. But that's it's an entitlement, and government should give it to them. And they will vote for this president no matter what. And, and, I mean, the president starts off with 48, 49, 43. He starts off with a huge number. 
Uh, these are people who pay no income tax. Forty-seven percent of Americans pay no income tax. Putting aside for a second, John, we'll get to it, the substance of what Governor Romney said. Fundraiser to fundraiser, what's what's your view, what's your thought for Mark Later, who hosted the event, and Governor Romney, who went to the event, that when you're trying to talk to a group of people who've written very large checks for the campaign, you're trying to give them a behind-the-scenes peek of the processes and challenges, and you hope that that's not going to end up in the evening news, but it's been all over the news this week. Well, you know, I think we're, uh, you know, a couple of thoughts on that. First of all, um, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your perspective, we're in an era where nothing is off the record. I mean, with cell phone cameras and, and all that, anywhere you are, you have to assume that whatever you say, uh, it, it could potentially be broadcast. So um, I think that, um, it, what, you know, from a fundraising standpoint, what is, well, forget about fundraising, from a political standpoint, in campaigns where every comment, every soundbite appears to be something that's poll-tested in focus groups, moments of candor are pure gold. And so anything that appears like it's, wow, this is the guy letting his hair down and saying what he really thinks is going to have, it's going to get huge, huge play. Because people are looking for a way to break through the overly scripted, uh, you know, dynamic of these campaigns. And I think from a fundraising standpoint, if you, when, you know, somebody comes in as a donor, they want to get the inside story. And I think what Romney was trying to do there was uh, basically make a political analysis. And, uh, you know, unfortunately for him, the political analysis also opened the window a little bit on how he views the country. And that, I think, you know, proved to be pretty damaging. But, um, you know, it's always dangerous when, when politicians become pundit-in-chief. I mean, I think that that kind of analysis, you know, just from if, just from the standpoint of putting together a fundraiser, you'd much rather have, uh, or it's probably better to have, uh, safer certainly, to have the presidential candidate talk about his vision for the future and have the campaign manager be there and talk about how they're going to put together the votes to win the thing. I think what happened here was Governor Romney was, was confusing the two and and was probably trying to give a political analysis, but in the course of it actually kind of opened a window on his perspective of, about the country and, and basically his vision for America, which is probably not a vision that, that's shared by uh, uh, certainly the majority of people, as we've seen in the last week. Uh, any thoughts, John, as you plan these dinner events after the concerts in both Southern California and the Bay Area about restrictions that you place on people to make sure that there aren't any cameras in the room or or, or you just have to treat it as an open event and and, uh, and s- give the same message you would with the cameras rolling I think you got I think that the uh, yeah, I think you've got to treat it as an open event because even if you I mean what they have done at some events like if the president visits your table they'll collect cell phones before that but you know the people at the next table have their cell phone or the waiters have their cell phone. Um, you know, or the the child of the person hosting the event at their house has their cell phone camera. So it, it I think you just have to, uh, you know, you just have to sort of come to grips with the fact that everything you say, you know, that the, uh, outside of a closed room with just a couple of people, you know, advisors in it, uh, is potentially public record. And and don't say things that you mean, but you wish you hadn't said. You know, just say what you mean and you want to say. So that, that's, uh, 
I think that's the world that we're living in. I think, uh, unfortunately, it means that these candidates will be even more scripted in the future. Well, John, uh, you've got one more mission for President Obama uh, for California coming up in October. Uh, assuming there's an Obama re-election uh, or not, uh, wide open field in 2016. You, your colleagues, are Kim uh, excited about anyone in particular about the sort of next round that we'll begin thinking about even before the full votes are counted in November? I think that, uh, I think, you know, right now everybody's focus is on getting uh, getting this one done. I think it's still going to be a close election, notwithstanding, you know, the the, the fact that it, things are starting to break, appear to be breaking uh, President Obama's way in the last week or so. But I think it's still going to be a very close election, and folks are focused on that. Obviously, the, um, uh, you know, the big open question for 2016 would be whether Hillary Clinton decides to run. Uh, I, for one, take her at her word, which is that she is exhausted after four extraordinary years as Secretary of State and and just needs to kind of step back and and take a breather. And, you know, we we say a a week is an eternity in politics, even as we've seen during this past week. Well, four years is, you know, is like a millennium in politics uh, or more than eternity plus. You can have that. And so... um, you know, consequently, it's pretty hard to pretty hard to judge. I mean, you can sit there and sort of look at well, who's potentially on the Democratic uh, bench, uh, but you know, no one at this point ever even imagined that Barack Obama would be. Uh, he was still a state senator in, from uh, Illinois at this point. Nobody even imagined that he'd be a candidate for president, much less president four years later. Well, John Emerson, president of the Capital Group, Prime private client services, uh, California co-chair for Barack Obama, and my old friend from so many trips out to California from the White House days. Thanks so much for taking a few minutes with us on Polyoptics, and we'll see you down the road. Hey, thanks, Josh. And I got a question for you. Yes, I remember when we, were in, when we were in the White House, you kept talking about wanting to create a television show called West Wing. <laughs> I, guess, I guess somebody beat you to it. In fact, oh, John. Read about that show, I thought, hey, is that is Josh producing that? Been uh, very disappointed to see that, that you weren't, but it was. Uh, I know you had the original idea. Well, John, that's a perfect lead-in to my next guest, Eli Addy, who actually left the White House and went and worked for Aaron Sorkin in like the third season, uh, t- picking up where I left off in the summer of 1997 when I was having those ideas and saying, John, i got to find some agents in L.A. to pitch this idea to because the White House, it's just a drama waiting to be written. We got a pilot made with, with Lifetime Television, and somewhere it's collecting dust in an archive, never again to be seen. Aaron Sorkin was a, a far better writer. The sets were far more beautifully shot, better direction, a lot better acting. And unfortunately, it was a great idea, but Aaron Sorkin made it happen. And unfortunately, you can't patent an idea or, or, or copyright an idea. You can only copyright the expression of that idea. So, oh, well, we'll say hi to Eli for me. Thanks, John. we Will do. Take care. Thanks a lot. Take care, Josh. Bye-bye. History in the making. This is POTUS, Sirius XM 124. As we continue our rare Polyoptics California episode forgetting for a second the Bob Woodward interview that we did at the top of this show, I wanted to bring in my other very dear friend from California, Eli Addy, who left us in Washington to write for the West Wing and Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip and more recently House. Back in Washington, he worked with my boss, President Clinton, and was the chief speechwriter for Al Gore from 1997 right up until the final 
blasts of the recount. Eli Addy, welcome to Polyoptics. How are things out in California today? It's a pleasure. It's 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 great. Uh, it's great to be in California and to be talking to you. And it only felt like I worked for Al Gore for 35 years. Um. <laughs> <laughs> when Gore conceded the election to Governor Bush, uh, where were you at that moment? I mean, I'll give you a few answers to that question. You know, I was with Gore. I did a lot of traveling with Gore. I, I, I didn't travel with him all the time because, you know, I needed to spend a certain amount of time, you know, writing speeches and editing speeches. But I was with him. I was actually the person who broke the news to him on the first election night that the vote tally had narrowed to about 600 votes in Florida and that it wasn't really clear what was happening. Um, and I was standing about two feet away from him when he called Governor Bush to retract his first concession. Um, and I had written a, a concession speech for that night that was not delivered. In fact, I'd written about five different speeches, none of which were used, because we thought maybe we would actually lose the popular vote and win the Electoral College, and we thought maybe we would win the election and lose his home state of Tennessee. And we had all these versions, none of which were used. And then at, at the end of the recount, um, I pretty much wrote that second concession with Gore. I would say he wrote a lot of it himself, but I was you know, typing and editing and with him and uh, went with him you know, to the old executive office building where he delivered it. So I was close at hand for that whole period, that whole ugly period. And what was the bridge, Eli Addy, that from that moment where you saw sort of the end, uh, the inauspicious end of the Gore campaign in the old executive office building to the idea that uh, you would soon uh, turn in your blue pass, no longer either a uh, campaign employee or a White House employee, and do this crazy thing of moving out to California. You were a rock writer, but you're a New York kid, and you'd lived in Washington working for Dick Gephardt for yeah. so long. But but California was a, was a, a new thing for you. Yeah, it's a funny thing because so many people in the entertainment business um, have, uh, you know, maybe they were lawyers, maybe they, you know, are working at different jobs, you know, in different parts of the country, and they've got a pile of plays or screenplays in a drawer, and it's a dream that they've always kind of nursed. I had never wanted to do this or, or thought about being a screenwriter or a television writer, um, but I knew that, especially after the Florida recount, I was so burned out and demoralized and angry, I knew I wanted to change careers. I knew I wanted a break from Washington. I thought it would be a year or two before Gore ran again in 2004, and I was all ready to come back and do that. But I had a couple friends from college who were television writers, and a friend of mine from out here kind of jokingly said, oh, you should sell out and become a television writer. You're a speech writer. How different can it be? Um, it turns out it's actually pretty different. But really, um, the short version of the story is on a total lark. Um, I cold-called Aaron Sorkin, who at the time was running The West Wing, which had been on the air for about a year and a half. I'd barely seen it, but people had said to me, here's this TV show that's about what you used to do. And this is maybe two weeks after the recount was over and after, as you say, I'd turned in my, my blue pass. And um, working on a presidential campaign, at the time, I thought somebody who ran a TV show was a very unimportant person. You know, that that's just somebody you want a $2,000 check from. And, you know, now, of course, I think people who run television shows are enormously important. But um, I just called Aaron Sorkin out of the blue, really got the number for Warner Brothers Television from information and just sort of scraped my way through to his office and kind of said, hey, I'd like to have a cup of coffee with you to talk about maybe working in television. I wasn't asking him for a job. And I said to him, the first thing I said is, I really haven't seen your show very much. And he said, I'd love to consider you for a job. Um, he didn't know who I was, but he knew I had been in the sort of uh, belly of this beast that was the Gore campaign. And so I came out and I met with him, and a few months later I was working there. 
Uh, it was totally accidental. I had no background in it. I'm convinced in a way now that that was one of the elements of my being able to survive in it because, you know, if you don't know much about screenwriting, um, it also means you don't have any bad habits. So if you work for somebody good and talented, and Aaron Sorkin is certainly very good and talented, you can kind of emulate their good habits and start off in a decent way. You know, it's, it's a long and rambling answer to your question. Well, I want to get into the actual craft of a 60-minute episode, not only on the West Wing, but uh, on House as well in a few minutes. But coming fresh from Washington, uh, and I, I think I remember, uh, Eli, that your initial credits were as story editor. But what does Aaron initially have you doing for like year one and year two uh, when you're working on the yeah. show? You know, Aaron is very atypical among people who create and run television shows in that he seeks to do as much of the writing himself as possible. That's not true on other shows, and it wasn't true in any other job I've had, um, which made that a perfect first job for me, because what he was really looking to do was to have a writing staff of kind of smart people who maybe knew something about the subject matter, and if they didn't, could research it, who could give him, um, you know, sort of like come up with story ideas for the characters, and, and you know, that would be maybe about politics or policy, but also about character relationships and sort of throw a lot of ideas at him, but also put together just kind of smart arguments, because he doesn't have a background in politics or policy. So he would come in and say to me, um, okay, I, I know I want these two characters to have like a really angry argument, argument about welfare reform. You know, write me a page where it's two smart people taking different sides on that issue. And that wouldn't really be what the scene would be about in the end, right? The scene would be about this character's trying to date that other character and impress them with how smart they are. It's some character subtext, which is people watch anything. Um, but I would come in with... with um, a two-page memo for him, and because I was, came out of the White House, and I had a bit of a writerly approach, you know, I think I was able to put it into a vernacular and use phrases and jokes and acronyms that he liked, that would seem like you would say if you really knew that subject matter, so it would be something he might not be able to write himself as easily. So he spent a lot of time kind of mentoring me, and I don't think he sought out to do that, and we became very close, but, you know, he would come to me and say, okay, well, this is great, but the first page doesn't go anywhere. It really starts on the second page. And then shouldn't they get angrier, and shouldn't she throw that back in his face like this? So without realizing it, he was kind of teaching me how to write scenes. And then part of my job was pitching ideas. He would come into the writer's room and say, what's the next episode? And somebody would say, well, there's a nuclear meltdown, and it's this character's birthday, and he doesn't like telling people it's his birthday. You know, we would just throw a million ideas at him. And he's a very, very tough critic and had, has very high standards, certainly did when I worked for him. And so I learned what stories were. I learned about the different, you know, beats, scenes in a, in a storyline in one of these multi-story episodes. And so it really wasn't until about a year into the job uh, he left the show after my second year, and That's I stayed right. for another three years. But it was in his, uh, his final year at the show, which was the fourth season, that I wrote the very first script that I wrote, which got rewritten by him and then aired. Um, and then I co-wrote a few others that year, which got you know rewritten in varying degrees and aired. Um, but it took me a year to learn what is a scene, you know, what is a story, you know. So after Aaron leaves and a new writer team develops, mostly under original creator John Wells, uh, you're actually credited with creating one of the, the newer and final uh, major characters in the West Wing. Let's hear a little bit of Matthew Santos at his, at his uh, convention speech. Don't vote for us because you think we're perfect. Don't vote for us because of what we might be able to do for you only. Vote for the person who shares your ideals, your hopes, 
your dreams. Vote for the person who most embodies what you believe we need to keep our nation strong and free. So Eli Addy, it sounds like you were able to sneak in some speech writing at the end of Westering anyway, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny because even in my very earliest days working under Aaron, um, if there was a speech, you know, Jet Bartlett was supposed to give a speech, he would sort of come to me and say, write me a little speech for this section. It was the one thing from the beginning that he kind of felt I, you know, and I, I, I would like to think I did know how to do after, you know, 10 years as a political speechwriter. Um, you know, and that was part of my way into the rest of the job. Uh, um, but, yeah, Matt Santos was, that was a great, for me, that was a great time on the West Wing because after Aaron left the show, it was so hard to, as I know a lot of the fans of the show would agree, it was hard for, a, you know, some ragtag group of writers to approximate his style and voice. We tried, but, you know, he's so singularly talented and has such a very particular voice that I think in a weird way the show got better after he left, maybe not better than when he was there, but better than, better than copying him was to do something new and different so that we weren't in the shadow of those earlier seasons. And I think that's what happened when we brought Jimmy Smith and Alan Alda and, um, you know, Jeanine Garofalo and some other wonderful cast members on board. As great as that original cast is, I mean, they're all fantastic. We didn't know it at the time, Eli, but it, it turns out that uh, Jimmy Smith's as Matt Santos was based on a state senator from Illinois, or at least drew some of the biographical yeah. and emotional details from that. Can you tell us how you were involved yeah. in sort of uh, flushing those well, out? Well, it's funny because um, I didn't create the character. The first episode that... Um, Matt Santos was in was written by another writer on the show. It was John Wells' idea to really shake up the series and to run the next presidential election and to have a Republican who maybe we actually would like, you know, a bunch yep. of Hollywood liberals, you know, would like, and uh, and our audience hopefully, and um, and you know, running against some Democrat who might represent, as the show was always trying to represent, you know, what was coming on the political horizon, politics that we might wish for. And so John was the one who said, let's, let's find an attractive Latino candidate. And, um, and he immediately called Jimmy Smith and met with him, and he was interested in doing the show. And, you know, Jimmy's one of those people who's, who's very much a TV star. Um, he really has an audience that kind of follows him to the different shows he, he does, and a very talented actor. And um, so he was introduced in a couple scenes in, in an episode. But then John came to me and said, you know, I, we want to shoot a few episodes entirely on location that are all about this new character beginning to campaign and beginning to learn the ropes. And, you know, John asked me to write two of them that wouldn't air consecutively, but that would be filmed consecutively, kind of like a movie. We yep. ended up filming a lot of it in Toronto. And so this character had been in like four scenes in the series at that point, and I had to write like two hours of material for him. So I really had to kind of define him and what was his backstory and who was he and what did he want and why was he running. And so the first thing I, I tried to do was to find... Um, maybe California-based Latino politicians that I could talk to or research or talk to their advisors, because I wanted to learn, you know, what's that experience like, um, you know, of sort of being on the post-racial cutting edge. And I, I just, I, I did talk to a few people, but I couldn't find anybody who was breaking out nationally or who seemed like they were, that they really had any of the characteristics that I wanted this Matt Santos character to have. And around that time that I got this assignment, Barack Obama, who I'd never heard of, spoke at the Democratic National Convention in 2004, still a state senator, overnight became a rock star. 
And I had known David Axelrod from a few different things. I'd worked with him at the 96th Democratic Convention when he came with Dennis Archer to give one of the yep. nominating speeches at Clinton's convention. And, and I helped, uh, just I was in the rehearsal room. I, I didn't really change the speech or anything. And then I worked a little bit on a, you know, freelance a little bit on a mayoral campaign that David was involved in. So I, I knew he was involved in the Barack Obama race. So I just called him and said, can we talk about Barack Obama? And we had um, a couple really long conversations. I remember on one, he was driving like to Milwaukee from Chicago or some really long drive. And we talked for like a couple hours. And, you know, I just was asking him about a lot of things. You know, what is it like to be a black politician who's trying to rise above that? You know, what is it like to be a kind of a rock star who people are drawn to and to manage your life exploding out of control when you're trying to do something a little more grounded? And a lot of those conversations, a lot of the stuff David told me ended up in those first two episodes that kind of, you know, I fleshed out the character more than created the character. You know, if anybody's pointing to that parallel, I'm just extremely proud. You know, it sort of makes me seem like I was seeing into the future, but I wasn't at all. It's interesting in that in one of those same episodes that I think you're credited as writing, uh, you do see the uh, amalgam of what Hollywood liberals or even this New York moderate would find as a very attractive Republican candidate. And for me, at the very beginning of this campaign, Mitt Romney seemed as a, as a a moderate who you could actually bond to. But let's hear a little bit of Alan Alda and the conflict he has with one of his aides in one of those episodes. I never thought it was going to be Santos. He didn't have a chance at the nomination. Now we're three weeks into this, and I can't do it. I can't be working all day and night to beat the first Latino nominee for president. And now that we're using his heritage against That's him... That's not what I'm doing. I'm talking policy. That's fair. Please, Senator. I was in the meeting. If Santos is afraid to lead the country on these issues, then he doesn't deserve to be president. The voters have a right to hear from the Latino candidate about Latino issues. He ought to be way out ahead of me on this stuff. Twins are two and a half now. My mother-in-law just taught him how to say the word Santos. Someday they're going to ask me what I did on this campaign. I can't tell them I did this. In retrospect, Eli Addy, that sounds a lot like Mark McKinnon. You know, uh, <laughs> that's an interesting... I, 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 I know Mark just a tiny little bit. Um, that was not based on Mark, but, um, but I did know that Mark um, was involved in the McCain primary in yep. 2008, and, and I'm pretty sure, and this is probably publicly known, I'm pretty sure, because he had told me this once, that he had told McCain and the McCain team that um, if Obama was the nominee, he was not going to work against Obama in the fall. That's and right. He I mean, he, he was on our show a few weeks ago. He actually wrote a memo and said, and he put it in his desk, and he said, uh, I don't think I'll ever need this memo, but I'm going to have to take it out and, remember, and remind Senator McCain that I wrote it because I, I can't work against Obama. You know, we said this on the West Wing. In fact, in fact, it's a line that I had probably heard people say over the years, and, and I, I put it into Alan Alda's mouth in the episode of the West Wing where Jimmy Smith wins the election uh, in the final season that, you know, um, history decides who becomes president. Circumstance and history decide. And it was all in all the sort of saying, we can't do any, you know, there's no, you know, wargaming this in hindsight. We could have done this, we could have done that. History chose the president. And, you know, I think that that was true of Obama. I mean, you, you, you become the person for your time, um, you know, and, and, and uh, it's, it's got to be a very painful thing as a political aide to be on the wrong side of history. 
Uh, I never got that uh, experience because uh, the presidential election I worked on was stolen. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, 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 I can imagine that was hard for somebody like Mark, who's a good guy and a professional and loyal. You know, and we tried that. That's what we tried to get into on the West Wing as much as we could, the sort of the human uh, truths and tragedies, you know, of being a, a political, you know, servant, as both you and I, Josh, you know, lived and breathed for so many years. Well, Eli, after a, a sort of bridge of working with Aaron again when he came up with his next show, Studio 60 on the Census Strip, you really settled in for a long run uh, on the show House, which, uh, which just ended its run, I think, a, a year ago. And I'd like to hear just a clip of one yeah. of the episodes, I think episode six, uh, or season six, episode 17, uh, The Lockout, and one of uh, Hugh Laurie's lines with David Strathern. This doesn't bother you. You're talking with your mouth full? A little. I meant the fact that you're standing here watching me die because of my, my file bored you. I take maybe one in 20 cases. A lot of the people I turn down end up dying. It's really a good argument for there being more than one me. You think about it. So, Eli Addy, so much of your work on the West Wing might be able to be ascribed to being autobiographical or experiential, but how do you make sure. the pivot into writing so week after week and at a very senior level uh, medical uh, medical drama and about issues that you know neither you or I know much about yeah. to get when we get into it? Well, you know, it was a scary thing for me because I did my um, five years on the West Wing, and I was so deep in politics and policy, and if I didn't know, I knew exactly who to call from all of our old friends in the White House and, you know, around Washington. So I felt I had this very specialized knowledge, and it, there definitely was a bit of an adjustment period for me in-house. And as you say, because I'd risen up, the way television works is you sort of, your, your, your rank kind of increases every year, and so I began in-house at a fairly senior level where I was expected to really produce the goods from the very beginning. And they always give you a script or two where they know you're, you know, the boss might do a bunch of rewriting and you're going to need to be, you know, have, have a lot of things explained to you about the show that you might not know from just watching it. And what I came to learn is that, you know, the politics and the policy and those things on the West Wing, which sometimes are very interesting and sometimes especially people who are steeped in it, they might have really gotten a, a kick out of watching a military storyline on the West Wing that echoed something that they really knew about or something about welfare reform where we represented the right way. But at the end of the day, it's the character relationships, it's that character subtext that has to be running through every single scene, and the story is all about the characters. Because I had experiences early on, I would pitch Aaron, and here are the five scenes of this story, and he would take all of the policy information and debates and legislative maneuvering that I gave him, but change the character story. You know, it's not a story about Josh changing his mind on an issue, now it's a story about Josh uh, refusing to change his mind. And the story would be completely different. And so when I when I approached House, first of all, we had a great team of doctors and people we could call to, to you know, ask questions about medicine and to design those medical stories, though we kind of had to come up with them ourselves, which was very hard. But it ended up still being autobiographical. The best House episodes I think I wrote were about emotional issues that I face, whether it's, you know, guilt about things in my life or... Um, trying to, you know, I sort of, um, it, it took me a while to realize that even when I was writing about doctors in a diagnostic medicine department, they could be versions of me. They could be dealing with emotional problems that I am dealing with. They could have um, workplace issues that I might have been having. Um, and so I think one of the great 
gifts of having worked in politics before getting into Hollywood stuff is not so much that I worked in politics, but that I worked in the real world in an office that wasn't just people trying to get screenplays produced. But I grew to love House, and the people there were great, and the guy who created it is a great friend of mine still, and um, you know they held my hand through those first couple scripts, and and uh, you know and I, I I stayed till the lights went out. I co-wrote the very last episode of the series with the guy who created it, um, which was a lot of fun. So when a series does end, both the writers and the actors move on, and you look for work, and the actors look for work. And Eli, I was struck last week because such the news, so much of the news focused on this movie. I use in big quotation marks the innocence of Muslims, and yeah. people like Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and others dismissed it as uh, deeply offensive, and it none of it shall ever be see the light of day. And yet, because of free speech, it's fully available on YouTube. And I I I wanted to see what it was, and it was a piece of crap, but it was clearly real actors and a good deal of actual production, as bad as it was. What's the talk yeah. in the L.A. creative community about the fact that you can have such high art like West Wing or House, and yet people out there can also create things like this? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, first of all, I just read this somewhere that um, one of the lead actresses in that movie is um, suing the producer because she claims she was duped and didn't realize what kind of a movie it was. And I think some of the dialogue in it was clearly dubbed. And so... Yeah. Um, lest people believe that there was this dedicated team of people, you know, who wanted to bring this, you know, anti-Muslim vision to the screen. You know, I think it's a horrible thing when people use any medium like that, that's a kind of a creative, collaborative, potentially positive medium to spread hate and darkness and, and uh, you know, but anyone's entitled to. Um, it's like our old friend Jay Carney said in the White House briefing room, you know, the other day uh, uh, about these cartoons in this French uh, magazine. You know, uh, people have the right to uh, express themselves that way. That doesn't mean we have to admire their judgment in doing it, you know. Well, Eli, Addy, I'll let you get back uh, to work now. But I, I just wanted to close with, with one, qu one final question, which is um, sure. did you, when you saw on May 1st, uh, 2011, your friend and mine, Tony Blinken, pictured in the Situation Room uh, on the evening that uh, Osama bin Laden was killed. Did you wish that you were still writing for the West Wing and could you could create that story uh, with your friend Tony actually in the picture? You know, um, uh, it's funny. I, I didn't make that connection in my mind. But um, I will say this, and I don't know, Josh, if you feel the same way. I mean, my time in the White House, it was a great, great time. I was there for, you know, almost five years and um, had so many wonderful experiences and so many great friends. But uh, I feel like it was I was sort of living this extraordinary, momentous history and mostly not able to pay attention to I was always hunched in some room looking for a power outlet to plug in my laptop, crashing yep. on some late-breaking assignment because we'd ripped yep. up the whole next day's schedule. And I never really got to... I never felt I was a part of history. I don't even know if I was, really. I mean, here I was, a political speechwriter for the most part. But Tony, you know, my dear friend and yours, you know, this is really one of my best friends in the world. I was the best man at his wedding. Um, he's one of those people who kind of inspires the West Wing. And, you know, he talked to a lot of the West Wing writers, you know, before I worked there, after I worked yep. there. And any anybody got off the phone with him, they would say, this is the kind of guy you want in government. That's um, there's right. a wonderful reference to him in Michael Lewis's Vanity Fair article um, in the current issue about him arguing for a kind of a you know conscience-based intervention in Libya. 
uh, to Obama. And, and um, there are so many people like that in government. And one of the great things about the West Wing is that, you know, so much of popular culture depicts people in politics as bloodless, craven tacticians. And this was a show that's, that would be very hard to do today. And people are criticizing Aaron's new show for being Pollyannish or too utopian. But the West Wing was basically saying, what if these were decent, honorable, hardworking people who don't always get it right, but always try? And that's closer to the place I worked in than anything I'd seen before. And that's definitely that, Tony Blinken. You know, you look at Tony. those photographs and you think, like, all you need to do is put a little patriotic score to that, and uh, you can put that on television. Well, Eli, I hope before too long we see your, your name back on the screen in an EP role, showrunner, because I think you probably have uh, a million stories yet to tell. Thanks so much for joining us in Polyoptics. Well, I really appreciate it. Take care. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter, at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.